2: Here's a message from Friends of the Show.
1: Hi, I'm Conan Liberian, and I don't have a podcast. I do, however, like most of us, have the need for a place to store, organize, customize, and create my tabletop campaigns, thoughts, and ideas. That's why you should check out obsidianportal.com. Customization that will match any need you have, a fantastic community, and an experience in and of itself that will get your players engaged, not just during the session obsidianportal.com. Your players don't just stay at the tavern. Why should your game just stay at the table? obsidianportal.com.
2: Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. It's been a really big week over here at Tabletop Journeys. We are very excited to be coming to you here today with just some cool stuff that's going on here. We're getting ready to make the big formal announcement for our next Kickstarter. We have our artists under contract as of today, which is amazing. But before we get into all that, before we get into tonight's episode, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening. We didn't get a chance to play this last week. Where is Glenn today?
1: Oh, I'm not telling. You have to guess. Wisconsin. You're smart. (laughs) Maybe it's because I've been talking about going to Wisconsin for months. And I just
0: just sent you mail there. (laughs) You're you're in the the land of great cheeses. Mm.
1: I am in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, about an hour outside of Green Bay, where one of my adult children lives, and 40 minutes outside of Sherwood, which barely counts as a town. It's got like 5,000 people in it, where one of my other adult children lives, just visiting (laughs) and hanging out for the end of the summer.
2: And you just went to a game store out there, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah, this week I stopped by Adventure Games and Hobby here in Oshkosh. It's a family-owned store, and i got to say I was impressed. Their store is in kind of the downtown area. Not that Oshkosh is like a big downtown area. But it's massive. It is a huge store. It was so well-organized. I apologize to every other game store I've ever known and loved. But you know how half the time, it, one section of the store is almost like just a warehouse shelving like area. Under
2: construction still. <laughs> yeah,
1: and still halfway <laughs> under construction. This entire store looked like uh, Books a Million or some other book and game store. It was, it, its setup was on point. They had a massive play area that was very busy for a Sunday, even though they didn't have any organized play going on that day and seven giant terrain tables for uh, Warhammer and other fig games like that. It was wicked cool. But while I was there, I dropped them off a copy of the booklet printout that you got to see how our subclasses of Dragonlance would come out as Mm -hmm, a printed mm -hmm. copy, and I dropped that off for them to check out and talk to them about our upcoming Kickstarter. Good times.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Brilliant. I absolutely loved how well that Dragonlance looked. It is a shame it is not something that's regularly available as far as a print copy, but it is available digitally. Right. Those who do purchase it that way can do what they will once they've made yep. that purchase.
1: Fair. Um, and we didn't actually, this was our first foray into print. So we took a product we already wrote and we just said, hey, let's print a couple of these. This
0: week yeah. To God. see how it comes out.
1: To see how it comes out. So, we're sorry those weren't offered for sale. It was our first attempt yeah. at layout for print, and so that we can yeah. be ready for that with our future publications.
2: I was yep. just going to say so, why would we possibly be trying out like print vendors and things like that? Why would we maybe be doing that? Audience out there, I will tell you why. And it's because we are literally. At the point of recording this, by the point that you hear this, you all know that by now we are launching our next Kickstarter on September 28th for the Traveler's Guide to Factions, which is going to be a somewhat system agnostic with some system-specific rules and stuff like that in there for nine different factions that you can bring in various capacities to your game and to your campaigns. But the big thing, obviously, for us this time around is that it's going to be the First product that we're putting out that has physical books coming with it. There will be a hardcover book tier for folks that want the physical books, much like I do. Like, I only back. Buy- Kickstarters that offer me physical books. But we're also going to have a retailer tier for folks that want to get in on that level. So yeah, so we're excited to be working out the kinks in that process now. The print that we got of the Dragonland stuff was fantastic. I was very happy with the quality. So I'm getting some hardcover stuff now to go ahead and see how the company that we're going with does hardcover just to go ahead and learn how to go ahead and do that. But I'm super excited about this project. I, I think this is going to be, it's going to be really hot. So I'm, yeah. uh, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: I think what's important to note is uh, when we started this content creation portion of Tabletop Journeys, we always wanted to make sure we were supporting our local game stores. Whether it be the Citadel here in Groton, whether it be Crossroad Games up in Maine, whether it be places in in far-flung areas of the country like Oshkosh, we wanted to make sure that we were supporting local stores. There, where we got our starts, we wanted other people to can keep getting their starts there, and we want to support those. When we first got into this content creation piece or part of the hobby, it was a hurdle. It's easier, not easy, to get things done as a PDF and sell them in various various platforms, various places as a PDF. Printing is a is another level after several books, several projects and one Kickstarter under our belt successfully, we know that we are at a time where we can do this limited print run for a product that we are not actually able to sell outside of DMs Guild does that. It gave us, gave us the confidence that we can say, hey, buy this from us. You're going to get something that's going to look wonderful on your shelves, but even better when you open it up at your game table and start rolling those amazing fan roll dice.
1: So you're saying basically – That we accumulated enough experience and we're ready to level up.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. We're firmly into tier two now. We've we've got through all the skitters of tier one. The three of us have successfully picked our subclasses and now we're ready to go ahead and get into tier two. Goblin
0: bosses are no longer a threat. Exactly. Bring us the gnolls. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
2: Brilliant! <laughs> that's, that's,
0: I, I like that. That's pretty I'm good. Not Brass sure how to go the with that. That's a I mean, I don't know that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that was fun. That was
1: fun. I had no idea when I threw out my one little quip that it was going to lead to that much.
0: Yeah,
2: from totally.
1: That was fun. <laughs> that was fun times, guys.
2: We like so, that. We like that here let's let's try to go ahead and get this train back on the track here and talk about what we're gathering together to go ahead and talk about tonight. So we have been, we've been talking a lot about storyteller tactics and how to go ahead and run your games, a lot of game mechanic stuff. We're going to go to the other part of storytelling and game crafting, and that's homebrewing your campaign making your campaign world deciding what's going to appear at your table and not and we're specifically going to talk about introducing superstitions and traditions that appear in your game world we did an episode several months back about out-of-game superstitions that your players may have uh, regarding dice likely when mentioned, mention those fine those fine fan roll dice that that we've been tossing around here you know uh now we're talking more about superstitions that are in the game world. Things that your players may either know or will learn, and how they interact with your story, or how they can drive your story more specifically. Leonica, let's open up to you tonight to go ahead and, and start off here. I want to talk about what role do superstitions and traditions and things play in the Land of 18 Seas? Because I know that the, the game world that you've got is pretty expansive and covers a, a wide swath of ground. So what kind of role does superstition tradition play in your game pretty
0: big i would say it's probably the thing that it, my game as a whole is most known for outside of political intrigue i as a gm as a storyteller i'm well known for re- crafting stories and crafting adventures and campaigns that delve into political ins and outs like the moving of powers the waging of large-scale wars i keep things very player focused and it's their interaction with those things what helps make those big end of the world or big world scenarios work well and resonate with the players is the personal bits. It's the little stories. It's the traditions. It's the fact the way I talk, my NPCs talk about the world. I don't ask the players to know this stuff. I tend to create some small documents with some of the basics Put them where my players can find them. But my NPCs are very much steeped in these traditions. One of the big ones that I used in the Land of 18Cs, one of the first ones I created was naming the four seasons. I've played in Farron for a long time. They had their own calendar and their own months. I played in Greyhawk when I first started coming up. They had their own names for the various months. That is one of those things. It's actually a very Tolkien esque tradition where you start naming dates calendar events or calendar the passage of time in different ways and that creates its own tradition it creates its own immersion for players in your game world i however as a player who has as a storyteller with adhd struggle with remembering 12 different months and then keeping track of where that is in the game so what i chose to do this time around with the land of 18 seeds was not focus on what the months were I just named the seasons. There's the winter, spring, summer, fall. However, what I did was I named winter season, shelter season. I named spring season, planting season. I named fall, harvest season. And for summer, depending on what culture you were from, it had two different names. It was either trade season or vike season because my Northern Islands is, is home to a number of different peoples and traditions that are similar to the Norse and Northern traditions. For them, it's Vike season. For everybody else, it's trade season. That's when you go about trading with other locales. By naming those four seasons and talking about them as NPCs all the time, that's how I immerse people in a big tradition within the land of 18 seas. And I think it was very much a part and parcel with why the world seems immersive because my npcs didn't speak in the same way we speak nine to five day to day in the real world
2: nice what about you glenn how did uh how do you because i know you're still working on the game world of the boiling seas on some level but what about superstition and tradition and how does it interact with what's going on there
1: There's a whole lot still in progress for creating the traditions of the boiling seas. The way that I started was I started with inventing a calendar and I have separate names for all the months, etc. But then one of the things that I've really done for the beginning structure of it is looked at current cultures and other cultures for the different holidays and the traditions that surround them that happen at various points of the year and what's behind them. Because almost every culture has some form of a harvest festival, so working from there and then breaking my way down, building a theology can be a big part of it, and the gods of that world are still very much mm. under construction too. I think my best my best story for how I've really put together some superstitions and traditions actually comes from the ill-fated one playtest AP of the Shard of Zaros. That mm. But for that one, I think that and it's a great example of why I usually come up with superstitions and traditions, because except for the ones that come up during play where I invent them on the fly, it's not something that I often put a huge amount of pre-thought into beyond that top level of regular holidays and stuff. But with the shard of Zaros and the specific type of society that I designed in that game for y'all, since it was such a resource tight environment to include people and it was a socialistic lawful, not quite militant, but you had to do what you had to do. Everybody had to pull their weight kind of society. And then trying to figure out how to bring the players from different walks of life together is where my biggest one for that one started. Because if all of you came from these different towns and communities and you'd been raised as a weaver or a, or a cooper or whatever it was that you've been raised, been apprenticing as or raising, been raised as for your youth so far... I got to find a way to bring everybody together. And that's where the time of service was born, where every youth of Zaros in the last two years before adulthood basically go on three-month tours and different types of work throughout the society. So in terms of a tradition, Josh, I believe you actually named the Dragonborns version of it because you worked it right into your backstory. And named I did. It. Drasavur. Lewinika did as well. For the Elvish people, it was called Hummel Vimash. But for the majority of the Shard, it was simply referred to as their time of service because it was invented just for that purpose originally, as opposed to serving some theological purpose in another society. But I love the way you guys brought that together and made the whole thing more rich by tying it directly into your backstories. But honestly, that bit and the pieces of that world's culture that all of us were developing together is probably where my biggest pride in superstitions and traditions comes from.
0: I loved what we did with that game. And when I say we, not just the three of us, but what each of the other players in that game, Ariana who worked with me closely in our piece of that game, and Mike, everybody who was involved with that knocked it out of the park. I loved the pieces that everybody else worked on. Oh yeah. I was thinking in my head it's going to be fun someday to play a Dragonborn out of Josh's piece. It's going to be well, fun someday to play out of that piece. There was everybody's piece it left me with, that's awesome. And that's really the goal here is to get that level of immersion and coming up with different cultural names is perfectly the way to do that. That, that just the brings drag- them to life.
2: Yeah. Not even the Dragonborn that I had, but mike playing a dragonborn mike from 19 hits the dragon playing a dragonborn that was totally different From a different dragonborn culture from a totally different dragonborn culture and my culture that was very uh very pluralistic very lack of identity lack of self it was we are part of a collective we only spoke in plural pronouns everything like that and then you got mike's which is which was much more of a kind of like traditional dragonborn like what the hell is going on with this guy over here and why is he talking so weird? I'm running around with
1: pamphlets for the winged mother. Yeah, Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) exactly. So it was really fun to explore that whole side of things and a different take on the Dragonborn that I'd never seen before. And that's how superstitions and traditions factor into my games when I do them, is I try to make them very specifically drive the plot or be derived from the plot, right? I use them a lot, right? And I have used in kind of a variety of different capacities. But like in even my most recent game world, the continent of Kalispar, for example, there is one of the, oh boy, which adventure was this in? The, oh, the Mystery of the Mines of Carrickshaw, which was a game that I ran at Drinking and Dragons a couple of years ago. The whole mission is that basically there's this group of people, this group of investigators that are sent by the crown to investigate this mine where... People are turning into stone when they go into the mine. Right mm-hmm. there's this, so there's this whole plotline about how to go ahead and do that. As a b roll sort of side quest to that, they are traveling from like the very civilized, centralized, cosmopolitan section of the country to basically like the backwoods section of the country where there are weird traditions and things like that. And one of the traditions that is there is that every spring there's a festival called the Pond Riot where people in the town don these garishly large wooden masks and search the town for who they believe are hags, right? Who are ha- like, there was a word, and I'm blanking on the word, but basically people who they think are going to grow into hags and they, they unceremoniously steal them from their house and throw them into the pond in the middle of town. And that they think that if they make it out of the pond, then that's fine. They're not going to be hags, but that if they're not able, if they are not able to crawl out of the pond, then it's because they're going to grow into a hag. And so they are fine with calling those people from their society. So it's this weird kind of dark, Tradition that is, it's part like Mardi Gras parade, it is part, it's part like Salem witch trial, it's part of, so. it's this like weird superstition that like exists behind this perfectly legitimate like mission that's going on in the front ground. And so, depending on how long they're there and depending on what time of season they go and everything like that, they can interact with this. And NPCs that they come in contact with kind of throughout the adventure, they'll see these garishly large wooden masks hanging on their wall. And that becomes a point to emphasize as people are interacting with people throughout the mission is that they have these masks. And if they drill into that, they can go down this rabbit hole of weirdness that kind of exists underneath the surface of the perfectly legitimate mission. So
1: Oh, that's really cool. I like it a lot. It's, you may as well have you could have just given them like a scale and a duck and had them weigh them to see if they weigh the same as a duck. <laughs> Very much, yeah. But I, I was totally picking up on all of the correlations there. And yeah. I, think, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it did remind me that in the Boiling Seas, the biggest area that had been developed was in Revelry the Bard with some of the stuff from the College.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah the you're, stuff you're... that you were doing in Revelry and and those blog entries are still up on the TT Journeys website. But the stuff that you were developing about how. Again, like the other side of superstitions, of course, is traditions, right? W- without being weird, you, you, traditions become weird and then become superstitions, right? But like the traditions that Revelry went through, the ritual of going through the Bard College and the things that Revelry experienced as they were going through there, the particular rituals that kind of applied there are, are totally exactly the same kind of thing that I'm talking about. Nothing that is ever going to necessarily. Something that is going to be a point of interest for the players, but is not necessarily going to distract from the plot, right? Right. It's going to augment the plot and add, it's going to add a little bit of salt to the soup, but it's not going to overtake the soup, right?
1: I could totally sit at your knee and learn a lot on the subject I can tell, because mine come about organically for the setting I'm creating for the story that I'm telling right now. And I could really blow them up and really make them shine more if I stopped for a minute and dove into them a little bit deeper.
0: When we're talking about these things, at least at this stage of the conversation, what we're really talking about is calendars, times, and types of events basically and if anybody's looking for inspiration in modern or recent modern media look to battlestar galactica if you look to battlestar galactica the original series just look at how they discussed the passage of time instead of minutes and hours they did yarns and centons actually reversed those so they did centons for minutes and they did yarns for time star blazers back in the day they had their own they had their own distance if star trek originally had distance at least in the in the movie era, they had distance, but Klingons discussed distance as Kallagams. Granted, there's a universal translator. They very easily could have said kilometers, miles. They could have used anything they wanted, and it would have worked. But the fact that they decided to go with a word that is unique to that culture, even in the existence of a universal translator – says a lot about the desire to impart culture and immersion into these people it, it spoke to the way in which they speak and so as actors they got to say something in a harsh gun-esque way and it worked other traditions in other media the purge i don't watch horror movies this is not a, a film series that i watch but think about i that was for trying to think second. of
1: the purge to relate that to josh's wit, witch but the hunt purge because it had some of that is in there a, too
0: is a perfect example of fiction writing a tradition that has gone on for several movies in a series it has a television series that have gone on with it it is memed relentlessly it's a tradition If so basically anything you put in your game world that happens on a regular interval whatever that interval may be that works my first dnd game when i moved back to connecticut i talked about this pilgrimage that took place every hundred years i was on kids. it yeah. And, and I did the, the whole campaign was based about this pilgrimage that walked the world uh, of the the entire campaign world and hit all the different culture, nationalities, nations of the campaign world. And it was called the footsteps of the gods. And it was thousands of years ago, the last gods walked a specific path. And this pilgrimage theoretically walks each of the, to each of the places that the gods walked. that's building in a tradition. And even in in Picard season three, Federation days, they built in a tradition. It's a foolish right. tradition. Don't put all your <laughs> ships in one place. Bad idea. Bad, Bad idea. idea, Ripley. Bad it's idea. Also streams there a little bit,
2: but yeah, okay. uh, But, but, yeah, it's but a you tradition. didn't mention Firefly about how like fi- Firefly, the influence that the Chinese language plays in Firefly. There right? is so
1: much tradition yeah. laced throughout Firefly That's oh, part tough, of yeah. what made that Ooh. show so fantastic and sucked yep. in so many fans and got. Honestly, the voice and support to take a canceled series and turn it into a full-length major motion picture capstone.
2: Oh, I mean, like the entire was... planet that believes that Jane is a hero? That's like that's, <laughs> the, <laughs> kind that, like, yeah. that's the kind of stuff that influences wh- where I'm working and what yeah. I'm going for, is trying to find out not just that things exist in my world, but why do they exist and the way that they exist.
1: And, and the companion culture and how deeply that went through their society, far beyond the concept of a simple skin game. It was much more and they were accepted and yeah. respected. It's the so many society.
2: pieces. Like mm-hmm. even when they start getting into like the reason that Reavers exist and what, mm-hmm. how they broke apart from society and what, trying to go ahead and take monsters like the Reavers and make them seem sympathetic is not easy for the things right. that the Reavers do. I will but never forgive them.
1: did it with the packs. I don't remember the number of packs. I, I will never forgive them.
2: Oh no, they will. Yeah. You know, they will never
0: uh, it, be, wash. It still will always soon. be too did,
2: soon. Did you see the thing I shared on Facebook earlier today? I did not. It's a video of this guy is doing. A, he's doing like a laser wood cut of the last scene from Wash in right when he when the reverb. You yeah. know, spoiler for folks that haven't seen Firefly. Wash dies at the end. Yeah, t- um, twenty year old movie. Right, sh- sh- whatever. Right, but he's doing like the laser cut <laughs> that hurt I mean, a as, 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 as it's printing. It's you know, I, I'm a leaf on the wind. Watch how I. He's like, oh, it got cut off. That's frustrating that it got three quarters of the way through the sentence and then just like unceremoniously ended right at the end there. But, huh, that's weird. Whatever. I even went ahead and took the little thing and I made look. Like, look, I even made it so like a little stand. If you just take this little other piece and just put it through the middle, but just like now it just stands and he turns it sideways and it's a reverse spear as the stand sticking out of the plaque. It's just like, you've got to watch it. It's hysterical. No, Anybody that wants to see it, it's, it's, um, it hurts it's too fabulous. much. Still too soon. Still it's too still soon. Too, I it'll never always forget be that. too soon. Yeah.
0: It'll always be too soon.
2: But these are the kind of things that we're talking about, right? These are the kinds of things that really, again, they add salt to the stew. Another one that I used a lot is, again, when we were just talking about not just stating that things exist, but why things exist, right? When I was starting to plot out part of the campaign world and had the section of the world where the dwarves live and the section of the world where humans had encroached and how they were getting closer and closer. But there was this gigantic forest in between them. And I was like, why would there be, like, why would that? Why would that forest still exist? Like, Why would that still be there? And one of the things that I piece together in my game world is that's because the very militant humans that live on that side of it, near the stronghold of dwarven fortresses that live there, they routinely run war games through that, where they try to simulate attacks on each other. Right, and there's there's this whole like again this whole like ritual aspect that goes to it. Like there's like a a flag that is uh, um, that the dwarven king like keeps behind his throne that he's stolen from the the, from the inner sanctum of the human fortress, right? And like his challenge to them every year is to go ahead and get it back and everything like that, you know. Um, uh, So all those kinds of things. It's not just you know what superstitions and traditions and things like that. Again, they don't explain that things exist; they explain why they exist, and that's why I think that's how I think you can really make them rich in your campaign world. So.
0: Absolutely. Glenn, earlier on, you mentioned holidays and going into different cultures and that. I think that's a great place to start. Like you said, most cultures have harvests and such like that. Solstices, mm-hmm. plantings, festivals are pretty common. Other things that are very common among many cultures, weddings, births, Death rituals. So coming up with new and fantasy ways of describing these or naming them becomes a really great way to build traditions. Your players don't have to get married. Players in my land of eighteen C's games are actually betrothed and about to be married. We've had several couple couplings along amongst my northerners. I'm actually writing a blog entry about that now because the off session conversation that followed last night's game was amazing what these guys have done for entering It's actually party continuing con- now.
1: A comment from Jeremy just popped up on that. Yeah,
0: the- they've been going all day. It's amazing. Some of it is a little not ready for public consumption, but <laughs> most of it is really good. Um, we have consent. We've actually done our session zero, so everybody's on board. And <laughs> I cut it about 11 o'clock this afternoon. Those traditions are part of it. Birth tradition, death traditions, naming conventions. Those are all things that really lead into this. So if you as a storyteller are are working these things in that's great if you don't have players that are in that kind of game or you're you don't necessarily have the consent to have inter-party marrying or coupling in your game that's fine you don't have to but what you can do is have your npcs that shop owner can say my daughter's getting married you guys did a great job beating the goblins back last week we would be honored if you were guests at my daughter's wedding and then put in some traditions maybe instead of flowers they all have apples. Maybe it's not a garter that gets thrown or a bouquet that gets thrown. Maybe it's the you like kid in the face with an apple. <laughs> no, I'm thinking maybe it's maybe the tradition is they have the daughter's bassinet swinging and wedding goers get to throw flowers into it. Or something like that, as the tradition. Yeah, or something, like, or coins, or something like that, into yeah. the swinging, the, the swinging bassinet, as right. the tradition. Oh,
1: that could be cool for couples, especially for cultures that are really all about carrying on the family. Yeah, standard gift at every wedding could be one of the parent sides gives a cradle for the first child. For the, for the first that's where gifts
0: go, there's lots of stuff. Yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of things like that, and you can borrow from different traditions as well. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we've leveled up our game and we're prepared to make your next role legendary. We've just started a partnership with FanRoll Dice and they have over 300 product options to choose from. Gemstone, metal, new liquid core dice, and so much more. Better yet, listeners to the Tabletop Journeys podcast can get 10% off on their orders when they follow the link below and use discount code PODCAST10. A portion of these purchases come back to us, and this is a great way for you to help support the show. thing i always caution people about though is be careful that you are borrowing and sending up and not appropriating and mishandling there are some traditions that are uniquely identifiable and if not handled appropriately could be viewed poorly so again safety tools are important and being aware of these things i as a general rule don't utilize traditions that i am not a part of But I do allow for collaborative work amongst my players. So if I have a player who's part of a given tradition and they wish to put their tradition into the game, that will become a part of the game because that's something that the player from a given culture brought to the game. That's important. I am building in traditions from my family roots, uh, the sea tribe of, uh, What's now Zambia. Uh, there's a number of traditions that are with us. Uh, and one of those traditions happens to be, there's no word for uncle or aunt in our culture. Um, there isn't, Hmm. uh, your father and mother, their brothers and sisters are also your fathers and mothers. Uh, and we just don't even have the word does not exist in the Losey language. For those of us that are live, live here in the states or in Western culture, we tend to use it. But generally speaking, I don't have an aunt. I have other moms. I have other whatever. So for those of you who've been my friends for many years, how quickly I have come to calling your parents my mom and dad. Sure, that's why. That is that is our tradition because those honored people who you respect as though they are your parents or you uh, allow them to treat you as you are their child are your moms and dads. And there isn't really a whole other thing here in the States, specifically in the Navy community and many military communities, kids don't call your buddies uh, parents by their last name. It is Mr. Mr john it's my buddy chad who i was in the army with his kids still call me mr lee one of them is about to be 18 shortly the other one has been over 18 for a while but i'm still mr lee because that right, they call the,
1: me mr glenn yeah
0: yeah that is the military tradition so those types of things become very useful in a gaming sense so for me and my family it is this is this is my dad. This is my mom. My niece refers to me as Daddy Aka because that's how she differentiates because there are a lot of us. So it <laughs> does become a challenge to narrow this down. I
1: will. Yeah, when you've got 17 pops, which one are you calling when you yell, Yeah, pop? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. To be honest, as the Amer- most American of all in my generation, it, it, it is actually harder for me than most of my siblings and my cousins. By the way, because there's no word for aunt and uncle, there's also no word for cousin. They are just your brothers and sisters. So yeah. I have, in American culture, I have 60 plus first cousins. In Losey culture, I have 60 plus brothers and sisters. That's Done
2: really deal. beautiful. That's really beautiful. That and is it really reminds cool. me. It reminds me of a conversation that we had back in February with Erin Roberts when we were talking about the work that she did on Journey Through the Radiant Citadel and the way that Radiant Citadel handled those cultural influences without becoming appropriation. And Erin happened to be a member of the community that she was writing from, mostly like Southern Gothic, kind of Louisiana Gothic, right? If you are listeners out there looking for a way to read through a book or to get in to get information on how to again how to be influenced by a a culture without appropriating radiant citadel is a fantastic source for that because the stories that are told in there are so good it's really worth your time to go ahead and paw through that
1: and each one of them comes with a section at the end that breaks down more about the society than yes. the story told. Exactly. Uh, which was exactly. really cool. It was a very valuable resource to me and yeah. yeah. opening up ideas yeah. for how to build a culture. Yeah.
2: As, as, as two white guys, we don't always want to write two white guys, right? Like, exactly. We want to be, I've know, been like working on and, trying
1: to diversify that for a yeah. while.
2: And, and, and I'm at the risk of being like really uptight about it. That's really what it comes down to, is that we want to be better writers and more rounded writers. And we also want to do it in an appropriate way.
1: And we want to continue to expand our own minds to be mindful
2: and learn
0: more
1: about other cultures.
0: Yeah, exactly. It should be noted since we're on the topic of uh, the Radiant Citadel, one of my favorite books on my shelf, Ajit George, the person behind that passion project and that wonderful book made a point of making sure that the people who were writing the various stories came from the various communities. So they got to tell their own stories.
1: So They were looking for culture. Right.
0: So one of the things that I did with the Land of 18 Seas was make a multicultural world. And there are just cultures there that I talk about very top level. And if the players happen to journey there, I will find more things to do about it. So if somebody goes into an area that requires a certain type of culture, I've got a book like the Radiant Citadel is a great resource to put that in there. I can find media from that actual culture. And I would go to legitimate media to pick up on more touchstones that work well for that area. And I think that's a very important tool. If you ask yourself the question, does this seem right? There's a good chance that it might not be. Just be aware of that question needs to be asked sometimes. And you can always back that down a little bit. If you have a diverse table and players that you're gaming with... um, have your players create the various communities that they come from. If they are willing to build in something from their own culture, their own background, I wouldn't presume to tell the story of, Of, I'm just going to pick a random culture, a Polish tradition. I wouldn't know enough about it. I just don't. I sure. have studied Norse history and lore to some extent. I have a number of books. The Icelanders, I've studied Beowulf. I've studied a whole number of Norse and, and Scandinavian books. So I have enough historical information that I feel confident that I could put that into a game without being appropriative. But I tend to stay away from the more religious elements of that when I put those into my stores, because I don't have a lot of personal knowledge about those elements. And I take care of that. I tend, and I have for the last 20 or 30 years, backed off of using the word pagan in my writing and in my gaming world. I have backed off of dealing with some of those traditions outside of a truly and wholesale, fictitious this is the mechanics of the game way of speaking about some of these things. When I speak about a druid in game, I am speaking exclusively about the quote unquote D D high fantasy druid. I am not speaking about a legitimate Druid tradition. And it's important and I make this distinction because I have friends who are Druids. I have friends who are part of these spiritual beliefs and it's core and personal to them. And what's core and personal to me, even though I don't share those beliefs is that those beliefs get respected wherever I am, not just at the game table, but wherever I am, I don't tolerate disrespect of other people's cultures in my life. So I make sure in my games that I'm trying to do that. And if anybody questions me, I am happy to back off immediate. If I am doing something by accident, All my players have to ever do is let me know, and I will immediately stop it.
1: Yeah, That's the thing. None of us are born knowing everything, so you do the best you can until you know better. Once you know better, you do better. I don't remember the name of the woman who made the quote off the top of my head, but that's a quote.
2: Yeah. So – that actually feeds really nicely into kind of the next thing on my list to go ahead and talk about in the realm of, of superstition and tradition. And that's astrological significance and how that may have influenced certain things. So I'm, I wanted to ask about the shard in particular, Glenn, because again, mm-hmm. so this is the the 1DD playtest that maybe one day will make air. But otherwise, it's just a really good time to play through. But ostensibly, we were floating on a half-exploded planetoid more like a tenth of
1: the planet yeah
2: (laughs) yeah what sort of like what's had you decided on any sort of astrological significance to like where we were or what was going on or had i know that there was a lot of collaboration with the players there had any of the players come up with anything about the region of space that we happened to to be in
1: i don't think the the players had quite gotten enough information yet but astrological positioning, etc., played a very big part in the creation of the Shard. And this is spoiler alert, but basically the way that the Shard was formed was an advanced race that the people now think were gods, but they weren't. They were just a lot more powerful than them and mostly used them as a slave labor force, etc. Except for a few who argued for their rights, like Griefka, who became the one god of the, the area once it was done. They were trying to enhance their own power and basically cause their own sun to explode. And their little universe was sucked into a black hole. And the shard is floating in the negative space at the center of a black hole. That's why ships fall in it. Anything that gets sucked into the hole may, if it survives, come down and land. And throughout the campaign, eventually, y'all were going to be working to free the shard from where it's trapped. There's a lot more involved there. And I had this vague pipe dream of turning it into a... Spelljammer floating city in the astral sea once it was free. So it was an environment that people could work with, but a huge amount, and I didn't realize it until now, as we're talking about it, a huge amount of stuff went into how the society was affected by that. And by being trapped inside this void of darkness with only the power of the, the dwindling power of the God Grievka holding the crushing gravity well at bay. And that's why the shard's dying, because she can't sustain it forever as the thing right, opens. Right. So I hadn't positioned them in the astral plane of 5e or anything specifically, but no one living on Zarus has ever seen a star or a moon or another planet. So astrology, and this was actively part of the backstory in the world, astrology effectively died when the planet exploded. Almost everyone From that higher race, everyone from that higher race was killed, with the exception of Griefka, who sacrificed herself and became the power source that protects them. So now you've got these common races of the world. Most of their history was destroyed in this process too. And now they're in this incredibly dense, small, harsh environment where they have to figure out how to make every resource count because they're not getting any more of anything. And there was a lot of thought that went into that. And how the culture developed because of resource scarcity, and even people being a resource. Like there is no death penalty; everyone is used for something. Lots and lots of, of stuff like that went into the traditions, just from its origin story and its creation. Hmm. So I don't know if either of you had figured out that it was stuck in the gravity well of a black hole,
2: but. Nah. Had not. So, so nope. So Ari and Mike and Fiona, don't listen to that last five minutes to so skip over that last five minutes. Don't listen to it.
1: In case I'm ever, had, ever had no able idea. to pull it yeah. back together again. Yeah,
2: exactly, it literally yeah. didn't
0: factor into my character's story at all. He was very family focused and not selfishly, but he was very focused on his family, protecting his sister and doing the things that needed to be done. The greater world was not his concern. And right. oddly, I think that played in and That's perfectly. the case for
1: most citizens of Zaros, so yeah, it was perfect. Their focus plays, is their that, daily life, what that, they have to do to help make the society run.
0: Absolutely, and it plays into exactly what you're going for, which is in a world where there's not enough food, water, heat, building materials, resources, the bigger the
1: scavenging big, group that Mike came up with was perfect. Yeah, goes out and scavenges crashes and
0: stuff for resources because yeah sorry continue yeah in a world where those are the primary concerns everything is existential (laughs) where you are (laughs) everything is is existential where you are in the universe is not important to the day-to-day life until somebody reveals that is also existential And then that becomes the primary focus. So until that was going to be revealed through our adventures, it would have never crossed my mind to even worry about it.
1: Being able to start spreading out into other worlds outside of where Zaros was trapped is what would have led y'all down those paths and you would have found more clues. And yeah, Yeah. but maybe one day it'll get a reboot.
0: But that was, Yeah. yeah, definitely. One of the things I wanted to talk about as far as traditions or other ways to bring traditions into your game tables is also, and part of this is because it's my bailiwick, is political things, things like coronations. How that looks, how that works, bestowing ranks—whether it be how the ranks in your feudal society work, or ranks in your militaries work, or is it a naval tradition? Is it an army tradition? Is it some other tradition from some other culture? Is it a Western military tradition? Is it an Eastern military tradition? Those words you use—is it a lieutenant or a lieutenant? Those types of things are all part of tradition and they all build into that. So it's important. I did a great scene in the land of 18 seas with my bar stock game where one of the player characters was became a landed noble and me describing the tradition of how that, cor- that happens in the, at the palace and sacred waters flowed from the first uh fountain that was ever found in the land by the original settlers of the land and how it flowed like the actual palace steps were built in a way that this water during coronations could be channeled and it rolled down so those becoming landed nobles actually kneeled down and their knees would be dampened by the water from this first well and then they were landed by the king all of those things were very important to it. And the, just the way I ta- described the scene and all the people congregated, that became a big tradition in my game. And to be honest, 90% of that I did in session and was basically me looking at the faces of my players and what they were responding to as I went. I literally had on the page, he's going to be knighted, make the ceremony cool. Yeah. And then I just started describing stuff as I went. and. I record my game so this stuff can be written down and become tradition, but it was a brilliant scene. I absolutely loved it. But that, those are the kinds of things you can do. You don't have to plan so much ahead of time, much to Josh's point or earlier. It's more about once you do it, if the players respond to it, write it down, record it, whatever. however you need to do it, but make sure that's part of the tradition. I don't have to run yeah. that full scene again, at least not with those players, but I can certainly talk about it. If I run another game and it happens to be there, and it might, if I'm running a group of kids who are trying to join a join a local thieves guild, it might be, you have to steal two canteens worth of water from the King's Fountain. Yeah. That leans on that tradition, becomes a thing that other players could do. What a great one-shot adventure in the land of 18 seas. So those things yeah. are very important.
2: It's like when we were doing the last book and you wrote the adventure starter, the remembrance of the blade. You and I talked a lot about that blade society that you had written that was so central to that mission uh, and starting to take from various fencing school traditions. And one of the ones that we settled on was the whole tradition of Schlager fighting, where, you know, if you're not familiar with Schlager fighting, it's that when you are no longer a student, you normally are given a ritual scar on your face from from an opponent. And that throughout, like through the 1950s, this was very much considered a Mark of honor and toughness to have a scar on your face from slogger fighting. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there in terms of like how to go ahead and take traditions and what the implications of them are. So yeah, there's a lot more that can be said about that particular tra- that particular tradition too. But that's But yeah, I remember talking a lot about that when we were doing Remembrance of the Blade and you were like, I really want to find a way to go ahead and make the society seem a little cool and really badass and a little fanatical. Like, how can I go ahead and do that? I was like, oh, I know exactly who you need to read up on. <laughs> the beauty of those things are that's what creates
0: immersion. When you start building in factions and into your games when you start building in these little traditions that characters npcs talk about or maybe it's just an npc a stat block but when you describe that that fighter who's there or whatever maybe it's not just a random fighter it's oh it's a fighter with that scar and somebody then says oh he's one of the society of blades now i know he's yeah. yeah now i know he's going to be a bit more difficult to fight Or whatever, because if that's ever been spoken about in your campaign world amongst your players, when they finally see one, now they're going to say, okay, we got to double down on this guy or whatever. And so maybe you take that stat block and give him advantage on his attacks because he's got this training. You just want to do a quick thing to make your villain a little more menacing or what have you. Or you want to make that NPC that they are like, wow, he's that good. You can do those kinds of things or whatever. But it's all about creating those traditions to get that immersion.
1: And just working into factions, as we go from a large environment into a smaller environment, there can be, each faction can contain its own individual sets of traditions and superstitions. And honestly, I'm excited to see what we come up with as we flesh them out.
2: That's going to be the really exciting thing is that we're about, at the point that we're recording this, we're about six weeks out from the campaign. We have, we've laid out what's going to be in the book, but now it's getting down to the solid part of writing. And that goes down to like how we approach campaign that we want the core offering to be done before the campaign is done at least in rough form to go ahead and make sure that we have time to go ahead and work on stretch goals and everything like that but the way that we're laying out these factions is going to be really interesting we're going to do a whole episode on what this book is going to be during the kickstarter so that so you can hear all about it as we're going through it but we really think you're going to enjoy this we really think you're going to like this so it'll be a It'd be a good time. Yep.
0: When we do that that later episode, we'll be calling back on this because that's the beauty of factions. You don't build factions without traditions, without superstitions, without these types of things. They're going to have their own holidays and ceremonies and things like that. So we'll definitely be writing that into the lore that goes with those. And so... That'll be a really important piece for you to keep in mind as you go ahead and move it and hear more about that upcoming project. While we're here, I did want to talk about religions, and not real world religions specifically, but fantasy religions, tabletop religions, in-game religions, and these are things that I think we have lots of modern media to talk about. If you look at even back to Star Trek, if you look at the way they handled the Bajoran and the prophets and the Bajoran society and Mm. their religious elements and how they have all their traditions. If you look at the Ferengi and the rules of acquisition, that is a very religious type of, of attitude and tradition that they hold. Many of the different things, the Klingon talk of stovakor and the tradition when a Klingon warrior dies, he's honored by his friends while they kneel, look down at him, say some Klingon words, and then look up, and and yell. (laughs) Those are fantastic things, but they're all traditions, and I think it's very important to bear that in mind, even in Voyager, because so many of who listen to our shows and so many that we connect with, Voyager's their favorite Star Trek show. If you look at the Vidians and the Phage, their tradition of harvesting parts and bodies, that's all tradition that led to involvement. I thought those were great antagonists. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more with them. The body horror elements were real with that particular tra- set of traditions. Yeah, but they were pretty creepy. I, but I will say this. They were a very interesting and in the scope of Star Trek, very unique antagonists. They stood out in the annals of 60-year history. The Vidians stood out. And that's actually hard to do with so many episodes, so many cultures, so many species. But it's largely because of not just the cinematography, not just the acting in those episodes by guest stars and stars, but because of the traditions that were not specifically spoken about but the traditions that we just intuitively understood based on what we saw at the tabletop you have to as a storyteller describe some of those things so you have to describe those things the npcs if the players are unconscious and trapped in that be- in trapped in that bed and they're about to operate you have to pause that scene as opposed to a villain monologue it's the two talking to each other about it so the players over here and then you provide them the ability to escape with that knowledge That's how you get that tradition into your game world. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I also wanted to mention as far as bringing traditions into our tabletop games is I also wanted to mention nightmares and family traditions. I am a person who has through most of my life been plagued by nightmares. Some of those things can be useful in traditions. You can build NPCs that are afraid of a different thing and then you can have that be a monster that appears in your game traditions. We talked about that when we did our Raveloff characters a couple of years ago. There when we discussed those characters or some traditions that kind of got worked into some of those conversations as well. But I also want to talk about family traditions. And one of those from my own personal family is something known as Lee luck bad luck that befalls <laughs> a family member. It's a great, it's a funny story, but, and I didn't realize it was as prolific as it was because there's this thing, if that something's going to go wrong, it's usually going to happen to me. And m- my local family had started calling that Lee luck when I was really young. And I thought that's pretty much where it ended up until sometime in my thirties, I was talking with one of my cousins in a totally different country and I was asking her how she was doing. And she's, Oh, I had a bunch of Lee luck today. And I was like, What? And she's yeah, yeah, So We have this cousin who lives in the U.S. And we all know that whenever things go really bad, you're doing all the right things and stuff just goes badly anyway. And it's really comical. We know it as Leelock. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. I'm that
2: guy. I'm that. I'm the lead.
0: <laughs> yeah, she was a bit embarrassed. She felt a little guilty. I'm like, that's, that's perfect- funny. I'm like, that's perfectly okay. But those are fun traditions you can build into your games. Those are the types of things that we did when we did the real thing with Mike. But those are the kinds of things if you're going to a convention game and you've got like one of your one of your buddies, one of your good friends or a family member that you're sitting with, build those things into your character. Those are the types of things that Ariana and I worked on for Glenn's game together. We built in those little family traditions within the game as part of our backstories so that it brought those characters to life. Cause family, every family has a tradition, good, bad or ill. Every family has a series of traditions. There's always something like dad always sits at the head of the table or youngest brothers. We always pass the food. We don't like to the youngest sibling. They always feed it to the dog, whatever that, whatever that <laughs> weird family tradition is. Yeah. Well, you get me the fork Comes to mind, Josh. I'm not asking you to tell the story, but I, I had to do it. I had to do it. That was a tradition. That's why I'm divorced. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But yeah, all of those little things, every family has a tradition. And if you build your character with its into its backstory, you pick something little like that, and you can find a way when the a moment is appropriate later on in the game to bring that up, your character comes alive for everybody at the table.
1: Yeah. yeah that's a good way to bring this. Background for the players again, too, aside from all the things we talked about for collaboration. For final thoughts, for me, I would say that's my final thought that some of the best traditions and stories that I've created, some of the best superstitions and just interesting little parts of the game world have come from working with my players on it, turning them loose. If you've got one elf from a society, let them give you some detail in their backstory about the Elven Society, and maybe you expand on it, Maybe and but bring it into your world. And your players can, will think of things that you never would have thought of on your own because you're one dude and one brain. Now you've got six players, you've got seven brains working on it, and you can come up with some really interesting stuff to bring it to life.
2: Yep. It's why I love collaborative world building so much and being able to relinquish that control just a little bit to go ahead and let a player explain why their character sings and what it is about their character that is special and unique. It's one of the things that I love about those, the game system, the burning wheel, right? Another a, a rule that I lifted from them uh, for my game is that everybody in that game world has one unique thing about them they have one thing that only they have and asking players to go ahead and come up with that and explain why they have that unique thing. Just is is, is, there's so much narrative fruit on that vine. It is, it's fantastic. So anyway, all right, let's 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 wrap up here tonight and see what we've got coming up next week on the show. So next week, we're going to be having our episode about the second book in the latest Dragonlance trilogy, Dragons of Fate. It was originally going to be tonight, but we realized that this book is uh, richer than maybe we thought at first level. And so we wanted to go ahead and take some more time to go ahead and, and dive in there to really make sure that we were doing that book justice. We love it so very much. We want to make sure we're doing it justice. So we kicked that episode back one more week. and. Then on so that's on Friday of next week. But on Tuesday, the next episode of Star Trek Preservations begins. I'm particularly excited about this particular episode. That's starting. Uh, the episode's called Chasing the Wind. It is the first of a kind of trilogy of episodes that I'm running. A, a mini arc uh, that's happening in the middle of season one. Here, there's there's going to be some some things that come up in these next couple of episodes we've been laying the groundwork for them already at the beginning part of the season here and i think that the players are going to enjoy it because there will be some answers to some questions that have have maybe been floating around all the way back to episode one on aslan station so i'm really looking forward to to bringing that up here so
1: sounds like a great time
2: yeah, it's going to be good. Anyway, that is our show for tonight. We want to hear from you as always. What are some superstitions and traditions that you've brought to your table? Benito, I know that you've got stuff on there. Please be, feel free to go ahead and chime in with the stuff that you've got in the game world of Alanis. We could do an entire episode on just the superstitions and traditions of Alanis. So that's,
0: yeah, and you don't get the freebie, which is don't give the paladin to the succubus. To the that's succubus. That's a known or, fact.
2: Or, or, but if you want to go ahead and come on and explain the story of the fish people, have at it. That would be fun. anyway thank you everybody for listening Uh, uh, fantastic time as always uh, uh, diving into this Uh, always the conversation goes places I don't always expect so uh, you gotta love it so I hope you enjoyed it we'll be back next week talking about dragons of fate and uh, yeah that's our episode for tonight thank you very much for listening everybody have a good week good night all later thank you for joining us this has been tabletop journeys we would love to hear your feedback on our show today Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast.
1: You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today
0: and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for Legends Await.